The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Taking Up Space Edition. It's Wednesday, May 8th, 2019. On today's show, the documentary Knock Down the House follows four insurgent candidates for Congress in the 2018 midterms. The one you may have heard of is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And then Tuca and Birdie is a fetching little Netflix animated sitcom. It's from some of the makers, I think an animator behind BoJack Horseman. And finally, it is astonishing to me now that we are doing it, how infrequently over the course of the 12 or so years we've done the show that we, we've talked about indie rock. Well, or maybe maybe now we know why we're talking about Vampire Weekend. Uh, but any excuse to talk to the supreme friend of the program, Carl Wilson, who is, of course, Slate's music critic. Joining me today is, of course, Julia Turner, deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, buzzing in from uh, Los Angeles. How you doing? Beautiful. El Segundo, California. Hello. And uh, filling in for Dana Stevens today is Isaac Butler, also a supreme friend of the program in my estimation. Uh, Isaac is many things. He's the host of uh, Slate's Lend Me Your Ears podcast. He co-authored a book with Dan Coyce, uh, Oral History of Angels in America, The World Only Spins Forward. You're working on a book about the history of method acting for Bloomsbury. All of it very exciting. Anyway, Isaac Butler, thanks for coming back on the show. It's always such a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Stephen. Knock Down the House is a documentary It uh, apparently sent audiences at Sundance into a into a state of rapture. It's now streaming on Netflix. It follows four candidates as they try to unseat what they see as bought-off and complacent incumbents in the 2018 midterm elections for Congress. Uh, yes, it follows four of them, and yes, each is interesting in our own right, but let's be honest. I think this, think of this, I can't help thinking of it as an AOC document, documentary, um, not only because, spoiler, she's the one who wins her primary, unseating the very complacent, the white guy incumbent to end all white guy incumbents, uh, Joe Crowley, um, but because she just is a political rock star, this movie does nothing but confirm it um, every time she appears on the screen. Uh, anyway, let's listen to a clip. Basically what political machines do is they suppress democracy. The whole game here is to prevent you from getting on the ballot in the first place. Joe Crowley's not just a congressman. He's the congressman. He's the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. He's the district leader. Joe Crowley has appointed every board of elections judge. When you turn in your signatures to get on the ballot, any tiny little discrepancy in the signature, they toss the signature out. So even though the actual requirement is 1,250, because we're challenging the boss, we need to collect 10,000 signatures. Good morning. Hi, are you a voter? Yes. I'm running for Congress in the area. We just need to collect signatures to get on the ballot. Who would you be running against? Joseph Crowley. No. Yes. I'm going to stick with Crowley, Kathy. Right. Okay. I'm going to sign anyway. I'm a Crowley supporter. Oh, okay. No worries. All right. No well, worries. these. this is Isaac. This is an instance of striking uh, documentarian gold, I think. Um, you know, they may, they certainly must have had right away some sense that she was special, but nonetheless, they they really got lucky following this particular politician. Uh, what'd you make of this uh, documentary? I was quite taken with this documentary. I cried several times while watching it. I thought um, Rachel Lears, who's the director and cinematographer, has a really keen eye for visual detail. Like there's a sequence in uh, Ocasio Cortez's kitchen as she and her uh, boyfriend attempt to make breakfast or coffee together. That really just is entirely what her economic circumstances are like in one image. There's when they go to West Virginia to follow another one of the candidates, you know, the establishing shot is these three billboards that really tell you an extreme amount about um, uh, uh, about the community of Coal City. You know, she, she's packing a lot in in under 90 minutes, which I found very impressive. I, I will say as someone who followed Ocasio-Cortez's race very closely, in part because I live in New York City and it was the 
close one to me. I, I feel like there is a bit of a tug of war about whether this is about the brand new Congress movement or whether this is going to be about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez within the documentary. And I found myself um, really longing to know more and to have spent a little bit more time with the other three women, Paula Jean Swearingen, Corey Bush and Amy Villela. Um, uh, at the same time, I thought it was really rousing and inspirational and I, I was deeply moved by it. Mm-hmm. Julia, what'd you, uh, what'd you make of the movie? Well, I think the imbalance that Isaac points out is the most amazing tension at the heart of this movie. We have in it four women motivated by similar senses of personal powerlessness and personal despair about the state of American democracy. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez's concern about economics for working families, Swearingen's concern about the effects of coal on her state, uh, Bush's uh, witnessing of uh, the violence in Ferguson, um, and Villela's experience of having a daughter die when she was turned away from an ER uh, because she did not have sufficient health insurance for the care that she required. Um, You know, there are a lot of parallels. And yet one of these women has been minted a national slash international political superstar and the others have not. And I think what I admire most about this movie is that it very plainly casts an eye on all of them. And you can see in the film how, uh, although one, you know, the message that I think Brand New Democrats, which is the group that's organized all of these women to run, uh, is trying to put forth is everyone should try this government belongs to you, you should run. The lesson you take away from the film is much darker and more cynical, which is, yeah, you should try. But in order to succeed, you have to be a world historically charismatic person and adept communicator. And, you know, some of that balance, I think, has to do with the economics of getting the film made. The filmmakers were based in New York. They were able to spend more time with Ocasio-Cortez. We have more uh, shots of her deciding to run, of her hanging around in her kitchen, of her, you know, going to get her name on the ballot. It's interesting to contemplate what this film would have been like had they been able, the filmmakers, to spend similar amounts of time with the other candidates. But, you uh, you know, the film sort of tries to present their efforts as equal and yet does what the rest of us have done in the country and the media and in the New York 14th, which is fall for the incredibly potent charisma of this uh, rising star politician. Well, first of all, uh, I totally agree that the that the fact that this is presented economically, it's, I think, under 90 minutes minutes if it's not it's scarcely over 90 minutes uh is is a godsend it's told with efficiency verve um and 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 real elegance i mean i do think isaac's right it's it, it's um uh leers that the filmmaker has done a, a great service in presenting this amount of information this compellingly and this quickly about her as a rock star i mean you, you think about the two most recent national level rock stars that the Democratic Party has produced. I mean, Bill Clinton's singular gift was being able to um, pithily sum up a complex fact about American society or wonky aspect of of uh, federal, you know, g- government policy um, in in just the the most terse. Uh, information dense simple he was just a, he was just a magnificent simplifier um and he was also an instinctive counterpuncher with the which the democrats hadn't had at the national level uh for ages probably since you know arguably since truman and then you look at the other rock star which of course obama and in addition to his own you know personal story being so highly symbolic um you know for for completely obvious identity reasons was capable of speaking about democracy in 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 truly elevating terms his essential message was you know we are the future that we've been waiting for whatever the fucking platitude was but the essence of everything he said was we collectively you know make our own fate and i think this documentary plausibly sets out the you know the implicit argument that she's both things i mean she is a magnificent counterpuncher as someone who's grown up with twitter um you know she returns fire immediately i mean she never takes a step back when when someone swings at her uh and clinton was brilliant at that too uh she's capable of of sl- sloganeering in the best 
sense of the word. I mean, she's just capable of reducing something to its its essence, especially the hypocrisy of the of the current political establishment. Obviously, her story from an identity uh, based on an identity basis and on a class basis is is super inspiring. And then I I think you're right. She embodies the thesis of the film, which is that that the House of Representatives is the most democratic, you know, representatively democratic body uh, in the U.S. government. It is meant to be ultra responsive to the will of the people, and it currently, as constituted and as executed, doesn't do that. Um, and I, it, what's th- there is a moment where AOC, in that pithy way she has, says she's making fun. It's a brilliant scene where she's making fun of Joe Crowley's flyer, and she says, "This is what happens when you have a." asinine consultant running your campaign for you. They charged them a ton of money and they produced this document that tells you absolutely nothing substantive or meaningful or moving about who this guy is. It and doesn't even point- tell you when the primary vote is. Yes, and she's that's and that's what she's so good at too. I mean, she just says like page after page of, of pseudo information and it never tells you when you should actually go and vote for him. But the but the other thing she points to Isaac is, is she says um delivers. He delivers for his uh, constituency. And she says, you know what that means? That means pork. And I agree with you, Julia, at the end of this documentary, that's the, that's the thing that just slices you down to your very heart is that, is that as constituted the, you know, you know, the rhetoric of collective democratic action versus the reality of the house of representative exists for these 435 people to go to Washington and bring back a, a slice of the pig to their constituents, uh, achieve incumbency by doing it. Um, and the only way to leverage your way into that system is to be the most lens eating, charismatic, you know, frankly, beautiful, uh, political rock star, you know, and, and so it's just the oddest combination of soaring along with some of the rhetoric and the hope of the movie at the same time you're getting just coshed on the head by you know entrenched political reality and they've only i mean it it is worth saying you know the democratic party has only uh, you know made that uphill battle steeper and gotten more entrenched there was this recent um news story that the dccc the democratic congressional campaign committee announced that it will um blacklist any consultants who work with insurgent democratic candidates so if, if you are in a primary and you are challenging a sitting democratic congressperson the dccc wants to make it as difficult as possible for anyone to work with you um and, you know, there there is this interesting thing where the ending of the movie is so triumphant and uh, it, it, it's really beautifully moving when, when at the very end when um, Ocasio-Cortez and her, her partner go to D.C. and look at the Capitol and, and she talks about her, her uh, father and, and everything like that. Um, uh, and at the same time, I left the, the movie as triumphant and hopeful as its ending is feeling incredibly sad. I, I don't know. Did you did you all feel that way when it was over? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I was trying to get at. You, when you think about the despair of Amy Valella's heartbroken sobs on primary night when she doesn't uh, doesn't make it over the line and you see that she's crying not just for the personal loss, not just at the end of an exhausting run of very hard work, but also for, you know, the notion that this was an assault on grief and death and the idea of a, of a daughter's death being completely in vain. It's so, it's so grueling. And you, you know, there is um, the one thread between the inspiring conclusion and the, and the uh, losses along the way is that Ocasio-Cortez speaks to Jean Swearingen on the night of her loss and says, you know, a hundred of us have to try for one of us to get through or something like that, which is probably true, right? Part of the point of Brand New Congress and the Justice Democrats, the, the two groups organizing uh, these people running, is to convince a bunch of people who didn't see themselves as potential politicians to run in order to identify the potential political superstars. The notion that in a you know, less broken moment for our democracy. Ocasio-Cortez might have chosen to do something else with her life and political belief seems plausible. So I think that the filmmakers want us to read that thread between the two women as true and somewhat heartening and also as evidence that the other campaigns we've been watching are not in vain entirely. On the other hand, what it really points up is the political success in our current moment means incredible media savvy 
and communication dexterity. And those probably are things that help you on the congressional floor and help you figure out, uh, you know, how to rally people to your cause and and the like. But also, that's not, you know, being a great communicator is not necessarily the thing that would cause someone to make the best laws, right? It, it, we We have a campaign system that privileges the thing that may not actually be what we need from our Congress people. And yeah, so I came away with a bleak feeling. I mean, but I, you have to, I mean, look back on how the right eventually triumphed. I mean, it, it, in some respects, began with a great communicator. You know, Goldwater got absolutely trounced in 64. But that same year, I think it was either right after or right before, Reagan gave a very famous speech that was televised. Um, and it, 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 it laid the basis for a transformation that took 15, 16 years to come to completion with his election uh, as president. But it would have been very easy in 1964 to say, what consolation? We just lost whatever it was, 45 states, you know, to uh, LBJ. What consolation is this speech? What's Reagan? He's worth, you know, what is Reagan but a, a straw man and a, and a quote unquote great communicator? So what? Well, that's where it starts. You know, I mean, it's it's you need, a, you, you know, it may be that you need a rock star. You need someone who the camera loves, um, you know. And who and who and like Reagan, someone who holds her ideological beliefs quite dearly and is able to speak, you know, on their behalf forcefully. I mean, you just don't know when this seed um, germinates. So in a way, I walked away ultimately hopeful because that seems to me the analogy. I walked away from the documentary sort of ultimately hopeful. Anyway, people should watch it. Knock down the house. It's on Netflix. You should absolutely check it out and uh, let us know what you thought of it. Okay, moving on. Before we go any further, I assume we have some business. Isaac, what do you got? First up, everyone should check out Flashback, a new podcast about old movies hosted by K. Austin Collins and our very own Dana Stevens. The first episode is about Gaslight, and every other Sunday they'll have a new episode exploring a classic film. While everyone can listen to this first episode, the ongoing series will be for Slate Plus members only. So sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash flashback. A reminder about Slate Day. On Saturday, June 8th, Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of live podcasts, energetic conversations, and fun experiences. See shows from Outward and The Waves, Dakota Ring, Studio 360, Trumpcast, and us. We're doing a live culture gab fest on the High Line. Come for the whole day with the all-access pass or just grab tickets for your favorite show. Either way, we can't wait to see you at Slate Day. For tickets and more information, go to Slate dot com slash live. In our Slate Plus segment today, we're talking with Dana Stevens about her adventures at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it's a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended, ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate today. Okay, let's go. Tuca and Birdie is a new animated sitcom. It's uh, streaming on Netflix. It's aimed at adults. It uh, is about the friendship between two 30-year-old bird women. I'm reading now from Wikipedia because I don't know that I could sum it up using my own powers of discernment who live in the same apartment building. Tuka, a cocky, carefree toucan, and Birdie, an anxious, daydreaming songbird. I, I have to admit, Julie, I'm going to start with you. I was, I tried. I really tried with this. It didn't break through with me. I scarcely know how to. I don't understand its aims well enough to sum up the show all that well. Maybe you can help me out. All right, but before that, let's listen to the play. Oh man, we've been through so much. This is the end of an era, Tuka. Yeah, it's no big deal. I'm sure we'll live together again at some point. Uh, I hope not. I mean, I'm kind of hoping things work out with my boyfriend moving in. We'll see. Bye. Is Tuka okay? Because I can help move this box of hers over there if she needs... Nah, she's fine. I bet she's happy to have a space to herself with nobody cramping her style. Well, now that the two of us live alone, I can finally cut loose and walk around here with my butt out! Oh, why does everyone I live with love free buttoning it so much? Ah! 
I knew Tuka and I had a common bond. Hey, what do you think if I hang this picture up here? Oh, it's a photo of your own face. Yeah, makes me really happy. I think I look handsome in it. Steve, I can't believe you would not give this show the dignity of writing it your own introduction. This show is brilliant. <laughs> it's so specific what? and delightful about female friendship that I now think all stories about adult female friendship should be populated by bird people. Um what did I love about this show? First of all, I should say I'm like a Hannah Walt, relative Hannah Walt neophyte. I never fell down the Bojack Horseman hole. Uh, I've read the admiring profiles and heard her name buzzing through the culturati air, but I haven't actually sunk my eyeballs into a Hannah Walt world uh, particularly intensively. And it is so detailed, precise, thoughtful, interesting, funny, hilarious, um, joyful, and yet lacerating. I mean, honestly, the thing it reminds me most of is a female brain Simpsons in a way. Um, it's less concerned with the family unit and more concerned with the lives of the lives of um, not yet quite settled down people in their early 30s. But it is just so sharp and funny about who these people are, the ways in which it sketches very particular characters, uh, you know, left me so delighted and overjoyed. Isaac, break the tie. Uh, break the tie. I'm going to break. The, I'm going to lean Julia in the tie here. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. I am a, a, a Lisa Hanawalt, uh, whatever a, a, a non neophyte is. I mean, I, I started following her. She had this collective art studio with um, Julia Wirtz, who's well known for a comic called The Fart Party and Kate Beaton, who's well known for Harka Vagrant. They uh, had a studio together with Sarah Glidden and a few others called Pizza Island in Greenpoint uh, in the aughts. And I just remember following all of their work on on the Internet and being a big fan. I'm uh, you know, Pojack Horseman's probably my favorite TV show. Um, I love the um, sense of possibility in the animation. You know, one of the things that's always interesting about uh, animation as opposed to live action is that like, if you can draw it, it can actually happen in your show or your movie. Right. And, and uh, people don't always take huge advantage of that. And Tuca and Birdie takes enormous advantage of that. I mean, to give one example, there's a part where Tuca sees a character that she has a crush on and she gets so freaked out about it that her skeleton leaps out of her body. But instead of that being like a fantasy element, her skeleton has actually fell out of her body. And the rest of the scene is largely about Birdie trying to gather up Tuca's skeleton before someone takes it so that she can reconstitute herself somewhere else. Um, I really, really enjoy all of that. Uh, I do think that the show gets um, clearer about what it's doing in the second half of the season. It does have a bit of that Netflix problem where uh, it takes a while to, to to find its legs, so you're sort of burning through a couple things to get to where it's going. Um, but um, uh, uh, I I did really greatly enjoy it. I only saw a couple of episodes. I di- it just did not engage with me on any level that I understood. I found it visually arresting, and but extremely busy. Um, very crowded. I mean, part of it is that I'm just like turning into an old person who cannot keep up with um, the, you know, the joke dense animated comedic style that, you know, originated in The Simpsons, but has gone now through like 50 different evolutionary iterations. Um, and it, just the sort of speed of it, the meta-ness of it, um, the, the conceit of it, it's like I was just waiting for it to t- touch something interior to me so that I could connect with what appears to be it's totally singular genius. I mean, this in no way is a judgment on the quality of what I was watching, but, um, but Isaac, it sounds like if I, if I stick with it, maybe I'll be rewarded. I feel like you could actually, if you've seen the first couple, you could just skip to the fifth episode. Um, the fifth episode, which is when they go to Tuca goes to visit her um, incredibly wealthy, mean-spirited, alcoholic aunt for the aunt's birthday. Um, and that episode starts to bring like a lot of the 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 threads of the show, the thematic threads of the show together and sort of show what the show is actually up to, I think. Yeah, it may be that the show finds its rhythm over time, but I also just think if you have ever 
been a striving, yet confident, yet insecure, yet ebullient, yet angry woman in the world. This show speaks to the experience of adult womanhood or verging on adult womanhood in a way that will resonate. And those joke dance shows, The Simpsons, 30 Rock, uh, I'm trying to think some of the other ones that that operate at that like pitch and level, often feel fundamentally male in their rhythm and perspective. And this may sound weird to say about 30 Rock, which is obviously the creation of Tina Fey and had, you know, in- considered issues of female bosses and women in power and different types of gender. But 30 Rock and Veep, both of Veep is another one that operates at that level. This show feels much more centered in questions of what it feels like to be a woman now. I loved, you know, there's a hilarious scene where Birdie, who's the more restrained and kind of uptight of the two, uh, gets excited about her friend's crush, which is even that, right? The notion that a friend's crush can be exciting and something that you sort of lose yourself in and, and root for and get excited about. Like that's total commonplace in female friendship and not something you see depicted that often. She like conjures this illustrated horny fantasia where she's going to run off with the sandwich guy at the deli and have some kind of sandwich related burning man that results in like a mass orgy and a sky hoagie. And as she describes it, she, she, she keeps like putting these little safety brakes and and like bumper rails on the fantasy like she's going to drive off on a motorcycle with the boyfriend but they're going to be wearing helmets and going at a very safe speed within 5 miles of the speed limit and <laughs> you know she keeps inserting words like safe and the, you know it's just it's such a specific uh character it's such a specific and fully realized bird woman um and i just loved it and there's another scene that i'm surprised didn't pluck your heartstrings steve since it's fundamentally about the uh, the terrors of oligopoly, um, where the entire arc of the episode is Birdie striving for a promotion and to develop the confidence to navigate the various social dynamics at work and the gross sexual harasser and to try to gin up uh, the confidence to ask for the promotion she wants. And then she gets it. And we think, yay, confetti, Technicolor, animated bliss. And then the final scene of her in this new office uh, and the, the the kind of bleakness of the treadmill of wanting to achieve and then having achievement just result in a life of more work and solitude and fluorescent lit boxes in the sky. That's so great. That's just poetic and beautiful and, and, I don't know, beautifully rendered. And I will say one last totally unrelated thing I love about this show. You can tell that the voice of it is coming from the animator. It doesn't feel like the animation is a thing that is secondary to the writing. It feels like the writing draws from the animation. And there are a couple moments where uh, the show explicitly talks about color in a way that nobody ever does in culture. Um, when when Birdie and her boyfriend Speckles are contemplating the newly settled life they've conjured for themselves, he describes how when you walk through the city at night, and you can see people's homes. Uh, they look so warm and yellow inside, and outside it's cold and blue. Like it's a color theory version of uh, settling down in life and relationships, and it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. I, it, you should go back and watch it again. I I also feel like we 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 should mention uh, uh, how good the voice acting is in it. That Ali Wong and Tiffany Haddish, who presumably are never in the same room together recording the show, because that's how voiceovers done now. Uh, uh, you know, like really sound like they have a lived-in, lengthy relationship. Uh, Richard E. Grant as <laughs> um, uh, Birdie's boss is incredible. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff going on. I for one will say that like I it's. Definitely Definitely a show whose second season I'm very excited for and and want to see more from. Okay, well, me being mystified by it is a meaningless uh, a fact of the critical universe as there possibly could be. I will give it another chance on your recommendations. Tuca and Bert, Bertie, it's uh, streaming on Netflix. Check it out. I just thought it didn't rain 
Well, Vampire Weekend, they're the rock giants who uh, formed at Columbia University who combine elements of indie rock with world music stylings. And there you go, three things to make you hate them all in one sentence. I had no idea how popular these blokes were, but apparently they're the first indie rock act to have two consecutive records enter the Hot 100 at number one. Carl Wilson is a Slate's music critic and a dear friend of the program, DFOP. Welcome back, Carl. Hi, great to be here. I'm just going to read a, a paragraph from uh, your piece because it'll get us into this segment and because it's awesome. What becomes an artist most when the field in which they blossomed goes fallow around them? Veterans of the mid-aughts indie rock boom have been struggling with this problem for years. In an era driven by streaming instead of the influence of music blogs, they've been eclipsed by rap and pop by a younger, more diverse generation of rock inheritors with other matters on their minds. Now, after a six-year sabbatical, Ezra Koenig, always the superego and now essentially the sole proprietor of the, proprietor of the band Vampire Weekend, has returned with his own solution, starting with perhaps the worst album cover of the year. Uh, Father of the Bride is the new Vampire Weekend album. Tell us what the significance of this band is and um, how they got so big. I'm just amazed by that. Well, it's, you know, they were kind of the one of the last of that kind of aughts era indie boom to, to crest. Like they kind of appeared in 2007, 2008, um, and very quickly were taken up by the music industry and set out on the festival circuit and um, were the talk of um, the internet. And I think that on the one hand, you know, they simply do have in Ezra Koenig this kind of preternaturally gifted maker of hooks and catchy phrases and, um, you know, not the world's greatest vocalist, but still somebody whose voice kind of grabs you. And on the other hand, they had this strange combination of cultural signifiers where they would, these Ivy League students who um, who talked like Ivy League students and looked like Ivy League students, you know, dressed in these kind of mannered, preppy way, and also did this strange um, cross-cultural thing of borrowing from um, from kind of 60s and 70s, primarily um, South and West African music um, in a way that um, was constantly compared to um, Graceland, to Paul, Paul Simon's 1980s um, African sampling album. Um, and so there was also just a great deal to talk about. There was a lot um, of reason to debate them. There was a lot of reason for people to hate on them and um, people on the opposite side to defend them. And so I think in that way that now is extremely familiar, almost too familiar to us um, culturally, it was one of those um, early incidents of some the, the power of something to generate conversation on the internet being perhaps almost as potent as the work itself. Yeah, you know, Carl, it's interesting because one thing you do bring up on the, uh, in this review is that you know the 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 signifiers and modes of music they're playing with have actually kind of they've moved into different territory, right? It's no longer the Luwaka Bop back catalog and 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 uh, you know high life music and stuff like that, but now you know it's it's dad rock, it's fish, it's the Grateful Dead, it's country music. Organs playing loud I can't carry you forever But I can hold you now I find it hard to get exercised about what Vampire Weekend means. I listened to this album several times. I think some of the songs are quite pleasant in a late Paul Simon way and may make their way into my uh, Spotify mega mix rotation. And I also, they feel cut off from the acts that seem closely annexed to the cultural conversation, the cultural moment, the political moment, they they feel like they're off in a little eddy somewhere making, as I think one of the pieces we read in preparation for this segment called it like breakfast music, like making breakfast music, which connects back to the sort of the Grateful Dead fish dad 
dad jams theme. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it's fair to say um, that this record bears no particular relationship to much that's gone on musically um, in the sort of charts and in and in the sort of most exciting streams of hip hop and things like that over the past several years. I mean, there are moments and there are production choices. Um, there's a couple of songs on this album that uh, were made with Steve Lacey um, from the band The Internet um, with, from the Odd Future Collective that have a little bit of a of a skew that comes from comes from things that are happening in hip hop and R and B now. Um, there's there's a <laughs> there's one song in which the the um, chorus is interpolated from an I Love Mackinnon song, although you wouldn't know it to hear it. Um, so there are touches, but yeah, in a lot of ways, Kid Ink is off in his own um, bubble doing this. Um, I think you know the reason to pay attention to him is really. Um, and I, you know, and I, I was skeptical of them for years, but the I've I've kind of come around to the fact that although the Paul Simon influences are there, the the level of skill is is like pretty comparable to Simon himself. Um, you know, they're both sort of New York area Jews from New Jersey and have a similar sounding voices and I think a similar set of kind of emotional and intellectual. Um, arrays of responses to the world. So in some ways, Kinnig comes by the influence um, very honestly. But it's the same kind of thing where you might be skeptical of um, of exactly where the, the artist stands in relationship to the world, but the music is just so good in the end. Um, I, I found myself kind of drawn back to this album over and over in ways that I wasn't expecting at all. They don't remember Anger won't survive Voices won't sing Sinners harmonize Till they can't hear anything Thought that I was free From all that questioning But every time a problem ends Another one begins And the stone walls are vomiting Carl, everything you say makes total sense to me, um, but it leaves me with an unanswered question. How, if they occupy such a unique, hermetic, and ambivalent space, did they get so popular? I mean, it's because popularity of that scale suggests touching a nerve, which in turn suggests a kind of delivery system for nerve touching that's, you know, streamlined for it. Like some, you know, typically you can point to an act that goes mega and say, well, oh, well, you know, th- at this moment they made this product. It, it, you know, entered this consciousness of this demographic. And those are the million or 5 million or however many people who this directly speaks to. I mean, do you have any, any sense of that? I mean, I think there's a there's two answers to it. One being um, that they did touch a nerve for you know white college kids exactly like them in, in the late two thousands, and there's a lot of people just got attached to it in that way, and they were kind of custom made in a lot of ways for the um, what, I, what I call in the in the piece the sort of. Uh, collegiate taste game preserve that is summer music festivals, which were, was becoming a bigger and bigger um, influence on music culture at the very time that they were appearing and has kind of remained so ever since. So that in some ways they have that particular zone locked down. But I think the other thing is that they also have a lot of casual listeners who um, simply got hooked by by the catchiness of the music and by the fact that you kind of could ignore all of the cultural battle grounds around them um, and simply let the music drift by you as like very, very pleasant background sounds or like things that you could listen to a little closer and go, Oh, that's kind of interesting. So I think it it has both of those, both of those sides. Um, and beyond that, I think it is kind of mysterious. I think they also just got really lucky. Um, 
arguably because um, sociologically they're the kind of people who tend to get really lucky. <laughs> and I think that I think that did happen. You know, I, I will say I was someone who, you know, when that album came out, was enraged by it and enraged by their success and was one of those people who just like had intense arguments, probably after having a few beers, you know, in a basement with people who liked it about like, how could you like this, you know, privileged, whatever. Um, uh, and uh, I have mellowed, I've mellowed in the 12 years since that album came out. Uh, and so I was sort of looking forward to listening to this one with kind of, you know, just to try to meet it on its own terms or whatever. And what I, I will admit though, what I kept finding is I, I think Ezra Koenig is like a really talented melodist. And I think that he's got an ear for a hook, but it just kept Kept reminding me of good music instead of resonating with me as actually good. Like it just kept making me think like, oh, I wish I was listening to everything that happens happens today or Rhythm of the Saints or, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, um, so like while it was pleasant enough, it didn't really like hit me at any of the various times I tried to listen to it. Yeah, I think that that's um, a perfectly understandable response. And one of the things that I think is happening on this album is that there's kind of a play with that kind of over obviousness. Um, One of the things that strikes struck me about it is like, there's constant, there's reference points everywhere to um, particularly to country music, which I think is a deliberate um, challenge to the old vampire weekend audience. And I've seen from, watching the response on the internet, a lot of the older fans have are like, what is this with the country music? And the, and I think that um, Koenig is, is kind of settling into that, um, that, that middle-aged tone with a real, with a real deliberateness. And it's certainly something that is, is, you know, on the cultural list of like non-obligatory um, listening. But I, I, I do think he's kind of, also found a kind of sweet spot where I'm just surprised how many of the songs on this very long, almost hour long album um, really, really win me over and convince me. I just can't tell how much of it is generational. Like I'm, tr- I keep trying to think if I had been whatever, I can't remember how I, old, I was 30 when they broke on the scene. If I had been 20, if I had like heard them first in my friend Jono's sublet in college before I heard, I don't know what, Manu Chow or fucking Paul Simon, would I have been like, whoa, this shit is major. You know, like, right. I, I just think, uh, I think I was like born at, born at the wrong time to quote, to misquote our pal. Oh, no, I mean, I feel, I feel exactly that way about them. You know, I, I was always during the period that they were kind of the thing that everybody was talking about. I kind of kept feeling like, what's the big deal? This has happened before in all these ways. Um, and I, and this is kind of the first album that I've like, that I really like, you know, as I, as I came to it. That's, that's kind of, I think a lot of my reaction is like, Oh, finally they've caught up with me on some level in a way that before I was like, yeah, there's something really obvious and, and callow about this. Can, can, can- can I tell a brief story on myself? This makes me look bad. Uh, uh, when uh, uh, when that first album came out, they went to college with like the kids of a friend of my parents, right, uh, at Columbia. And so I just remember uh, being home for Christmas and we like were, you know, visiting whatever. And we go to visit Faith, this friend's house, and she was having like a little afternoon cocktail, it's Christmas kind of thing that you do. And she was like, oh, why don't you come in? Uh, uh, Rostam is that his name? Um, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, Rostam is is here. You know, if you if you'd like to meet him, and I actually was like, I have to go, and did not go in because I didn't. <laughs> I did not want to have to be nice to a member of Vampire Weekend at a party. <laughs> I, that is like the level of petty bullshit I was into as a younger man. I'm still. We've I mean, all, I'm still we've all mellowed it. as we've aged, and thankfully so. <laughs> oh, must, no! Some of us have just refined our bitterness into a, you know, a paste. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, my endorsement this week is the twenty-year-old Julia Turner. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> she was fun. Julia was Turner, fun. a truly major dude. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking dude, major. So major. Oh. <laughs> 
All right. Well, on that positive note, let's uh, let's wrap it there. But Carl, uh, great to have you back on the show. It's always awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right. Well, now's the moment in our podcast uh, where we endorse Isaac. What do you got? Uh, Steve, I am going to endorse my favorite book I have read so far this year. And that is uh, Susan Choi's new novel, Trust Exercise, which uh, you can actually read Laura Miller's really um, insightful and very positive review of it on Slate.com, a website you may have heard of. But um, Trust Exercise starts as this kind of lyrical take on a relationship that goes sour between two horny teens in a high school theater program in the 80s and expands into something quite different and odd that's uh, about the untrustworthiness of memory and the constructed nature of the stories we tell both in fiction and to ourselves. Um, and it's also about the ambiguities and at times the the traumas of teenage sex and how those haunt people and, and shape us as adults. It's written in three parts. Each of the three parts is in a radically different style and each of them revisits the sort of central events of of the story. Um, but one of the fascinating things that Choi does in it is that those three accounts never cohere. Um, there is no objective truth ultimately in the book, which I know some people have found very troubling, but I actually think is like this really fascinating and thrilling thing. Um, and it's really uh, I, I found it particularly thrilling to see a writer use the kind of like toolkit of experimental literature, but like write about something that's usually like uh, uh, the territory of a primetime soap opera, which is like teenagers and their relationships going awry. Um, and um, I don't know. It's really beautiful. It's really fascinating. Uh, I really loved it. It's called Trust Exercise and it's by Susan Choi. It sounds like a great book i mean it sounds really cool i am going to seek that out um julia what do you have oh i now have a double endorsement katie waldman formerly of slate wrote a really interesting essay about trust exercise and truth and reality and accuracy and all sorts of interesting interrelated topics with her usual acuity and wit and zest and it was just one of those essays that's worth worth spending time with so if you read trust exercise then go read Katie Waldman's essay thereupon um the other thing I want to endorse this week is just a big fat log roll and I'm just gonna own it for the queen the book that Josh Levine is publishing later this month. It is an adaptation and significant expansion of his wonderful essay, The Welfare Queen, looking into the history of the Chicago welfare cheat who was uh, vilified by Reagan in his speeches during his rise to national political power um, and who really, as Josh shows in this book, helped set up a broader narrative about how America thought about the poor that set the stage for all sorts of terrible changes in our society. This book is so many things. Number one, it is a jaw-dropping, just astonishing feat of reporting. Uh, the number of chapters you encounter where you suddenly realize that Josh has had to go to an entirely new state, <laughs> encompass all of its archives, find the thread of this uh, devious and fascinating character who literally changed her name every four months <laughs> and he had to somehow still track her uh, and manage to across, I mean, just in my head right now, I can count, I think, at least five states, uh, possibly six, and there's probably more. Um, is amazing. The sensitivity with which he writes about her childhood and history and how it is that she became the woman that she became is fascinating the tenacity with which he pursues all of the failed and half-baked investigations into the various dastardly crimes that she may have committed over the course of her life including certainly kidnapping and possibly even murder uh is gripping and amazing and it's just it's a it's a complicated fascinating important revealing story and he does such a beautiful job reporting it and writing it. And I'm sure that listeners of this podcast will hear about Josh's book on this and many other podcasts in the Slate universe, but uh, it's so good. You should all buy it and read it. <laughs> I'm so psyched to read that book. Um, all right. I, uh, I am going to endorse this week, not the live broadcast live Zizek-Peterson debate between the philosopher, theorist, 
you know, all around, you know, Charlotte and Slavoj Žižek and the Canadian fascist mystic Jordan Peterson, um, which I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but the live commentary on it by Nathan J. Robinson uh, over at currentaffairs.org was absolutely hilarious. And I want to give you a little taste of it. You may have your own personal idea of hell. Mine is an eternity trapped in a room with Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek. I do not like these men. I consider Peterson a toxic charlatan and Žižek a humiliating, humiliating embarrassment to the left. I believe they both show how far you can get in public life without having anything of value to say if you're a white man with a PhD who speaks confidently and incomprehensibly. Um, and it takes it from there. I mean, it really is true. This is This is... This is just the complete and utter degradation of intellectual life that these two men represent anything at all, much less, you know, sort of opposite poles of, I mean, who would even know what to call it, left and right, uh, you know, science versus, you know, social theorizing. I mean, both of them scramble these categories through incoherence and not through nuance or complexity. Um, there are a couple of poltroons and idiots, and we should pay zero attention to them except for... Um, the fun that we could have at their expense. And I thought that uh, Robinson did a wonderful job narrating uh, one through. Because by the end of it, you realize neither one, really neither one has the first fucking thing to say about anything in the world. Uh, and um, anyway, um, enjoy it. We'll uh, post a link to it. Isaac, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Julia, thanks as always. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, interact with us at our Twitter feed, which is at slatecultfest. And now we have an endorsomatic slate.com slash endorsements. You can go look up everything we've ever endorsed on this show. So uh, seek it out. Find it. It's cool. Um, our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is uh, Alex Barish. For Isaac Butler and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. Part of what's so exciting, I think, about, about witnessing an event like a festival of all silent films is that you're very aware that you're part of carrying their historical tradition forward just by attending the festival and talking about them and, you know, making a a podcast segment about them.